Color Party People. It is Monday. That means it's Lost Origins Day, and I'm really excited for just the UN to pull it together and rename Monday as Lost Origins Day, and then there's Tuesday. Get it Wednesday. together. Yep. Yep. They're not responding to my emails. Priorities, people. Don't make us form a country and then petition to get a representative. Yeah. God. That's a lot of work, too, though, I'm finding. So much work. Weird. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now, and I, I get it, right? It's like there's, you, you stack rank the things, but... 2020's been an early start to any given year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of things on the plate. But, you know, at least it's not 2019. Anymore. True. There's yeah, that. we have... Yeah, indeed. Yeah, the yeah. future is bright. Really beautiful things going on, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I will say even, you know, not just thinking about the future, but looking way back in the past, uh, another homie of the show mm-hmm. that has pretty much been on the show since day one, uh, Inner Traditions and Baron Company. Yep. Constantly helping us give context to the moment. Things are great. Yep. Things can't be that bad. Uh, in the context of all things ancient mysteries, mm-hmm. all things ancient history, all things alternative theory, Inner Traditions and Baron Company. If you haven't seen it yet, if you don't know what we're talking about, that's crazy talk. Yep. But for those who don't, or for those who just haven't done it yet, innertraditions.com. Hit them up. Do it. Right. It's 2020. That means it's the year of perfect vision. And if you're a fan of ancient mysteries, it means you're always trying to get the right perspective or the right outlook on things. And if you're not familiar with those guys, my challenge to you, CK's challenge to you, the show's challenge to you, would be to have Inner Traditions help you with your vision impairment. Get woke, guys. Get Innertraditions.com. So let's talk about today's episode of the show. All right, so I'm super excited for today's show because today we are welcoming back an old homie from season two, Bruce Fenton. And if you did not work through that episode, you may want to jump back a season. Just check that out because this guy, man, anthropologist, digs into all the things, not afraid to ask the hard questions and look at things through a different perspective. And in that conversation, we only really worked through, you know, a, a small sample of his body of work, right? This guy has been all over the globe. He has poked at so many different theories, concepts, uh, controversies, ancient mysteries, all the things. And I'm really excited to get him back on the show because in our last conversation, we really worked through his book, Hybrid Human. And that's a solid, solid body of work. You should, like, we highly recommend that you check it out. Um, but in today's conversation, we're going to be digging into one of his other books, The Forgotten Exodus, the Into Africa Theory of Human Evolution. And so it's going to be one hell of a ride. We're going to be looking at the origins of humanity, one of our favorite topics of conversation. And, you know, I'm just super, super excited because Bruce is hands down one of the nicest guys that we've had on the show. He's very thorough, very thoughtful. Uh, We've gotten tons of feedback from the audience that they really enjoy the way in which he presents his work and his research. And so I'm excited for the conversation for sure. He's kind of a fun guy. He's super fun. And, uh, you know, there may be some controversy. 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 uh, Today. And that's going to be okay, right? We love it. Yeah, you know, controversy, uh, you know, that, that that's just an opportunity for personal development and, and growth. And even further, if the controversy is too much for some of the people in the audience, holler back at us. Our man would love to hear back, yeah. you know, through us. Um, he definitely, I think, seems like somebody who's pretty open to this stuff. So hopefully there's a bunch of uh, really solid nuggets. Yeah, and in the emails leading up to this booking, he did share with me his calendar for his fight club. Nice. But you guys, yeah. So if you guys, if you guys get real worked up, like you we, did, just violate the first rule of it, though. But whatever. Right. 
but it's not that Fight Club. You can it edit it out. A different, a different Fight Club. Delete it from everyone's mind. Yeah. If you want to fight Bruce Fenton, just let us know. We can uh, <laughs> probably make that happen. Jesus. Let's uh, let's just do an episode Get of the show, this I guess. Guy <laughs> on the horn. Don't talk about Fight Club. Bruce Fenton, welcome back, man. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you very much. And yeah, it's a pleasure to be back on. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, normally we uh, we do some introductions, but since uh, we've had a conversation with you before, um, just, you know, recently, uh, last season, we discussed your book, uh, Hybrid Humans, and it was such a solid exchange. We learned, I know both Andrew and I learned a lot. Um, super excited for today's conversation. And I know we're going to be digging into one of your other books, uh, The Forgotten Exodus, into or the Into Africa Theory of Human Evolution. But before we dive into that, um, and specifically the focus of that research, can you take a step back and share with the audience kind of the conventional view of the migration patterns of Homo sapiens? You know, give us a, a high-level overview of of what most uh, current academics would see as the understanding of, of that epoch. Sure. I mean, if you go back um, around about, let's say, about fifteen million years ago or so, you've got the early ancestors of hominins which are they're down these primates which are down in southeast asia sort of monkey-like creatures right they migrate there's a climate event which causes them to migrate across eurasia and to end up in africa um, a few million years later we have the early hominins so going back about seven million eight million years ago you have the first um what would seem to be recognizably hominin ancestors of our lineage uh, they were ape-like right so they definitely weren't human uh, and then it's not until about well about i suppose three million years ago you have a transition towards the genus homo and some of the the fossils at that time are considered to be transitional um, you can see there's traits of both you know the earlier ape-like hominins and more human-like traits and so from then on it's considered largely a, an african-centric story in which we have a progression onwards to Homo erectus, which emerges around two million years ago, they start to leave the continent, again in this model, uh, spread across um, Western Asia, and they make their way all the way down to Southeast Asia by around about 1.8 million years ago. Okay, So that's the, the what's considered to be the, the first big out of Africa. And then later on in the story, we have the emergence of, of Homo sapiens, which is considered to occur Depending on who you ask now, this is a story in transition, but somewhere around about 500 to 700,000 years ago, we have the the early origins of our lineage, supposedly again in Africa, uh, and that then largely they, the form evolves within the continent until there's some out-of-Africa events at around 200,000 years ago. And then, of course, the most famous one, which is at around 70,000 years ago, which is modern humans supposedly leaving East Africa, populating the rest of the world over the coming millennia. That's sort of an overview. Just a high-level overview, just millions of years real quick. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it's rapid. <laughs> you, you summed it up, though, like a boss. We appreciate the hell out of that. And so I know that in, in several conversations that you and I have had uh, offline via email, on the phone, whatever, 
you know, you, you've, you've outlined that there's been some some seriously incredible discoveries within this field since your, your book was released. And that's really where we want to spend the majority of our time in today's conversation. So before we explore those concepts and discoveries specifically, maybe provide us with a little bit of overview or context around the forgotten exodus, right? Uh, we really want to make sure that we're setting the stage here. What are some of the, the key takeaways uh, for, for our audience who have not read that book or maybe some of the high-level overviews of, of just the theories in general that you guys are putting forth in, in that body of work? Sure. I mean, one of the major, I guess, divergence points from the conventional story that, that are tackled in the book is the idea that Homo erectus um, was, of course, is already recognized as being outside of Africa, at least around 1.8 million years ago. But that this, it's possible that maybe an earlier, but either way, what we have is this hominin who is considered to be likely ancestral to us already out of the continent 1.8 million years ago you know all the way down to southeast asia now if homo erectus is indeed the direct predecessor if you like of homo sapiens we have a problem here because then we have of course we have a population within africa that's called homo agaster and then obviously the homo erectus that are outside of africa now why is it the assumption is we have emerged from those in Africa. And what I argue in the book, you know, for a number of reasons, so that it looks far more likely that the Homo sapiens lineages emerges from the, the second group that is already widely dispersed across the planet, right? So you have this divergence at this point in the story. And then my focus is largely on Eurasia and Oceania. And to, I don't really go to the Americas because that's later on in the story, but but basically that greater region beyond Africa. I tackle a couple of inter-Africa events, but the main difference here, yeah, of course, is we are not focusing on Africa, which is really in in all the conventional models is where they say all the action happens there. I also position the major parts of the stories for Neanderthals, Denisovans, uh, Red Deer Cave, you know, all of these other hominins, again, outside Africa. So, so we have this. Some of the other points I think people would find interesting is I, I go into the route of, you know, the the origins of language, um, whether Homo erectus could speak, um, sailing, which I know we're, we're going to attack in a bit more detail, but um, whether or not we could sail very early on, that's in there. And the, the true homelands of some of these hominins, which people would be quite surprised at where I would position Neanderthals and Denisovans and stuff rather than perhaps where they've been positioned in conventional models. So I think readers will find that it's very different. Also, particularly my folks in Australia, which is quite unique other yeah. than there's a couple of other like writers out there that have suggested Australia plays a you know a key role but as far as I know I'm the only person with a book that really offers a very you know concrete scientific argument for why we should be looking at Australia as as really fundamental to the homo sapiens and modern human story sure, so sure. so could you do do a little bit of a deep dive for us there though Bruce like let's let's talk about Australia mm -hmm. specifically what are some of the points uh, within your research that that has led you to continue to investigate that continent as one of the uh, origins of of you know modern humans today Sure. I mean, initially it came up out of some other research I was doing. I was based in Ecuador for a while, and whilst there I became involved with a site up in the Yanganatis, the jungle area in uh, sort of central east Ecuador, part of the Amazon. And in there, there's a megalithic site, which shouldn't really be there. It's not, it's not Inca, and it, it doesn't mesh with any of the known pre-Inca um, cultures of that region. Um, one thing that was particularly interesting, actually, is that on the blocks 
of this structure. There's a kind of mortar, right? the Inca, and as far as you know, all the other um, building cultures in that region didn't even use mortar. So this is somebody completely anomalous. Um, but what I found was that there was some writing about some bones that were found in a cave not far from the site. And these were, were skeletons of Lagoa Santa type people. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with the Lagoa Santa, they are basically a Brazilian um, population, an ancient Brazilian population, whose skull morphology suggests that they are very similar in their looks to to Australians and you know New Guinean people, right? Except you've got them down, of course, in Brazil, in the Amazon, right? right so this is right. peculiar. And then it also turns out these are the seem to be the first Americans. If you go down to some of the sites in Brazil, there's there's rock shelters that are coming up with dates suggestive of occupation fifty thousand years ago, right? Now that's obviously long, long before Clovis, you know, and obviously Clovis is in collapse anyway, but this, this tie in between the site I was investigating and this early population, it really sort of sparks. Me. I was like, well, hang on a minute. If there's these people there, you know, who seem to be Aboriginal Australians 50,000 years ago, how on earth does that tie into the out of Africa model? You know, this doesn't seem to mesh. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's where I, it became a jumping off point into, okay, now let me have a look and see what the heck is going on in Australia that could possibly make sense of what I'm finding, you know, in, in Latin America. So that was the beginnings of it. Um, and what you find as well, the first thing you do when you go to Australia, of course, is the oral history. You know, they say, look, we've always been here. We're the first people. We're the first people in the world. You know, all others come from us. You know, we've been here since the dream time and so on and so on in their, all of their, their law stories, right? Of course, that's not white man science or whatever as, as you know so people will say okay these are just the local stories but you know the interesting thing is as these law stories have been evaluated by scientists more and more of them are being shown to be accurate and there's there's a really fascinating ones you know where there'll be a story of something falling from the sky and you know they'll make up a you know a surrounding narrative but when you get to the heart of it if you follow the details in the story you find a crater Right, and you find that crater occur, you know, was caused by a meteorite fifteen thousand years ago or something, right? Or there's a story about a, an area where they were living, you know, <laughs> you go, to, you find it was under the water, you know, twenty thousand years ago it went under the water, sure. stuff like this, where it's it, it's showing that there's an incredible unbroken lineage in these stories going really far back, right, and that they're not just tall tales that they encompass genuine events genuine knowledge so it's interesting that you know from that perspective that this is what the Aboriginal people are saying um and what i did of course was drill down into the archaeology the the anthropology the genetics you know just to see what what the heck's going on here and, and it flags up a, a number of interesting things i mean particularly that just to give one interesting point that people know you'll often hear the expression that um the sub-Saharan Africans are the most genetically diverse people in the world, and that that is one of the reasons why um, scientists are so sure that they are the basal sort of foundational population for Eurasians. But one of the things that was assumed here is, of course, is that Aboriginals were one of the last groups within the migration across Eurasia, that they eventually, you know, they split off and go down to Australia. So they should be fairly... Um, well, they shouldn't have huge genetic diversity, put it that way, because they're a splinter, supposedly a splinter group from this broader migration. What you actually find is they have extraordinary genetic diversity. And at this stage, where the sampling is not very widespread, 
that they don't know how diverse, but I'm going to, I'm going to predict to you it's going to become very obvious that they are more genetically diverse than sub-Saharan Africans because even in the small sample groups that have been run so far, they're finding this unbelievable diversity where, for example, people in the north versus some people in the south, if you take the Papuans and people to the south, they found that they were as genetically distinct as people from you know basically opposite sides of the world. Right, and and they're separated by um, what now is obviously some sea, but before, you know, if you go back to thirteen thousand years ago, there, there was no geological barrier. I mean, these were just neighbouring people. The idea that they can be as as diverse, you know, as as people that be separated for unbelievable amounts of time and huge distance, was really not expected. You know, they were thinking these can be a really closely, you know, interlinked people, and that they stuff like that is starting to flag up. I think when they do a widespread genomic study, they're going to see that the Aboriginal people have the highest diversity in the world, which will mesh with what I'm telling you is that, that these people are the first people. And, you know, some of the other interesting, um, just kind of new data out there, thinking about how, you know, right now, if we look at uh, sort of the standard model of anthropology, we see uh, Jebel Er Hood, um, you know, originally thought to be part of Neanderthal, uh, you know, genetic lineage, but is now assigned to Homo sapiens. That's roughly 300,000 years ago um, in mm -hmm. northern Morocco. And then you actually posted something really interesting recently about the uh, Huanongdong uh, skull that was found not in Africa at all, right, but in uh, mm -hmm. Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. which is also around yep. 300,000 years old. Um, and so to mm -hmm. see that, you Absolutely. Know, just that if you were almost to triangulate this stuff and say, you know, these are not uh, geographically as related, but absolutely could potentially come from some origin point, uh, sure. you know, in the same region that these Aboriginal cultures are. Yeah. And, and this is one of the things that's been a problem is that um, there's a lot of finds in China, right? There's loads of really interesting fossil finds in China. Um, but the focus, again, has been on western academics you know american academics europeans and their modeling which usually is to do with africa so there's a sort of a bias when we look at say papers in nature and stuff you know there, there is a bias towards the western academics and, and they, they also look down on the the, the chinese this, this is something you find often they'll say oh well, they're nationalistic they're just trying to say that the chinese are the first etc etc <laughs> now that may happen right but the thing is they still have these fossils. And yet you cannot, you know, no matter how people want to sort of spin this, the fact is they, they have, going back to about 700,000 years ago onwards, they have the greatest collection of transitional fossils that display both Homo sapiens and kind of Erectus-like features known, you know, more than Africa has. In fact, Africa has quite a gap around about 800 to 500,000 years ago where there's not a lot of, not really as, I, as far as I'm aware, transitional fossils, right? From 500,000 onwards, yes. Um, but, but the Chinese seem to have an unbroken record. And also, they have a lot of these, you know, like the Dali skull and um, Langdong and several others. They've got, um, I'm just thinking, Jingzhang, there's about four or five, which look to be archaic Homo sapiens, right? Which are going back, say, 200 to 300,000 years ago, right? And it's like, whoa, hang on a minute, you know, wasn't Homo sapiens supposed to be just in Africa, just emerging? <laughs> 300,000 years ago. So so how are we finding these archaic Homo sapiens skulls all the way down in China, right? So the, the Chinese academics are saying, well, look, you know, what the hell are you, you know, saying that it's all in Africa when we've got these these finds, right? Yeah, yes, maybe yeah. 
not just one, multiple. Yeah. And then later on, they have modern human fossils, right, in a number of cave sites, which are dated 120,000 to 80,000, which again predates the recent out of Africa. So, so both the conventional models of, you know, out of Africa, the earlier migration, and also the recent out of Africa do not mesh at all well with the Chinese archaeology, right? And these are fundamental problems. So just shift gears a little bit, and, and you brought it up just a moment ago, um, but I know this is an area that both Andrew and I find really fascinating um, as evidence uh, of just when humans used watercraft for the first time. Right. Um, and so the academically accepted timeline uh, for Homo sapiens uh, is a little bit different than some of the things that your research and some of your recent discoveries have uncovered. Can you break that down for us? Sure. I mean, if you go back just probably five five to ten years ago, right? If you'd asked any academics, you know, when did any kinds of hominins, you know, first start to utilize watercraft in a, you know, in a really focused way, they would have said to you about 50,000 years ago when modern humans entered Australia, right? Now that has gone absolutely into the dustbin of history because we now know that there is, um, there's clear evidence on the Mediterranean islands, right, of our, of of sailing of some sort, right? Again, when we say sailing, wary because watercraft, you know, we're thinking of hollowed out logs, perhaps basic rafts, you know, but something that you can utilize to cross a river or whatever. Obviously, sailing implies a sail and a structured ship or something, you know, so, yeah. but certainly watercraft were being employed, right? So if you had to get to this Mediterranean island, you know, you had to cross water. It wasn't a case of where once upon a time, you know, it was dry and they could walk across, right? So they, and this dated back about, I think it was a couple hundred thousand years, right? But it was a hundred and something to 200,000 years. And so straight away, you've got an issue there. These aren't modern humans, you know, right? Um, so who are they exactly? We don't know. But there's there were so many stone tools on this island that it wasn't reasonable to say, you know, this is one guy washed across or, you know, this has to be a whole community, you know, manufacturing a large number of stone tools. And then, of course, you've also got now Flores, where we have the the Hobbit people, and on other nearby islands, they found stone tools, you know, there's fossils, and a range of dates. But basically, from about a million years ago, you've got water crossings in Southeast Asia to, to have got to, to Java and Flores and onwards, that you've got some kind of movement across water from then on. 700,000 years ago is the early signs of Homo floresiensis, these early Hobbit people. So we know that these people are moving, you know, there's people moving around. Uh, and the other one is down on Socotra, which is not well known. This is um, an obscure study, a Russian study that was done on, on this island, which is off the, the, the tip of South Africa. And again, you have to cross a significant distance of, of water, very powerful currents, you know, going around the tip of Africa. Someone has to have strategically meant to get to this island. You know, this is not, again, not washed out. Sure. It's quite a lengthy distance. Somebody has reached Socotra and there's stone tools there, which are being dated to, well, they think they could be as old as a million years old again. Wow. So this stuff is really, a, is, is really rewriting this idea of, you know, we had to follow these land pathways to get to place. And when you start thinking about it, you look at a map and you're thinking, well, if a million years ago we had boats, there's a lot of places where you think, well, hang on a minute, were we crossing here? You know, were we crossing there? And you can rethink migrations in your mind, just think, well, if they just crossed that little bit of water there instead of walking, you know, all the way around the continent, yeah. you know, then right. suddenly you have very different models for how people were moving around, right? 
But let me ask you this then. I mean, we have two different camps out there. You know, is that you got isolationism versus diffusionism. Um, have you seen a shift in trajectory between how those two camps interact with one another since these discoveries and these these uh, studies were completed? Or is it still pretty divided, right? I mean, like one group thinking that, nope, there's no way that anybody was, uh, you know, employing watercraft and, and, you know, transoceanic contact, all the different things. Or like how has the, like this theory rocked that community, if at all? You know, I think people tend to, um, you know, it's hard to get people to change from a paradigm, you sure. know, and if you are within a paradigm, you tend to see through the eyes of that paradigm. So, yeah, it is, it's rare for people to completely jump ship, but you're seeing some modifications to paradigms. I mean, like, for example, um, if you look, the multi-regionalists, right, you know, they've been shown to be right in some respects, okay, so we, we know now that that Neanderthals and modern humans interbred, right? That was one of the predictions of the multi-regionist model, okay? Um, whereas, you know, the purely sort of Africa, out of Africa people who said, no, you know, there wasn't any multi-regionalism. Factor. They've had to modify that and they say now, well, actually, it was multi-regionalism, but limited to within all regions of Africa, parts of the, the Near East, in Western Asia, so that they've had to change. You know, they're now so in a way you could say everyone's a multi-regionalist now. That's that's one major change, um, and the other acceptance of interbreeding between hominids, which is being forced on people. Which you know, a lot a lot of folks predicted it wasn't possible that Neanderthals was too different as a species to have mixed with us. But now again, that's gone out the window. And in fact, we're finding that you know that modern humans are really a hybrid, many right. different. Right groups. Uh, I think we're going to find in the end that we are a hybrid of of a much larger number, right, than than we know now. We don't have names for some of these hominins whose DNA we're detecting in us, right? So right. at the moment, there's a kind of an artificial idea that we are kind of a mixture of Neanderthals, Denisovans, and you know, I guess a direct Homo sapiens ancestor. But that's not really true. I mean, they've already found ghost population DNA right, in some different living groups today, around two or three of these lineages. Um, they now know there was at least three different groups that are being called Denisovans, but they're all going to need to have their own names, really, because they've got really deep divergence dates when sure. we come to that. As well. But essentially, so you've got three populations that are being called Denisovans. Probably more than, you know, there's at least a couple different kinds of Neanderthals. Again, so do we call them different names, perhaps? So you've got Homo heidelbergensis, turns out to be an early Neanderthal, so that's that's been a, a rewrite. Um, and then, yeah, we've got people like Red Deer K, these Florida, you know, the Hobbit people, Florida, a whole load of very small people that are getting found around the Indonesian and Philippines islands. You know, we've now got two other islands with what seems to be diminutive humans on them, sure, right? Sure. So, so this this map of you know of early people, it's expanding a lot, and it's becoming clear that we ourselves have a lot of DNA coming from more populations than we ever imagined put it that way so so i think everyone's community is having to be modified by this even if they don't fully jump paradigms right right we gotta jump to just a quick commercial break but when we come back more from bruce fenn This week's episode of Lost Origins, if you're just tuning in, we are reconnecting with our old friend, 
Bruce Fenton. And before the break, we were starting to get pretty hot and heavy with the out of Africa theory. And Bruce, we recently had Andrew Collins on the show tail end of last season. And I mean, his latest book really focuses on Neanderthals and Denisovans and all the things. And we, we had an amazing conversation with him. I'd really like to get your take uh, as to what your research is focusing on more specifically uh, with the story of the hybridization of the Denisovans, the Neanderthals, and then basically where their homelands were. Walk us through sure. some of your research around that, if you could, Bruce. Yeah, Denisovans is obviously a bit of a hot-button subject. Um, I think that everyone's quite in, kind of interested in it if they're not usually following these topics. Um, I've not read, um, you know, Colin's book with Little, um, but I'm aware of the content, you know, sure. what they kind of cover. Um, but I can certainly give you my view, which is I know is quite different to theirs. Do like, it in a way because, in a way because, to be honest, nobody else except for academics, really deep dives this topic in the way I do. And I'm not saying that in a in a sort of, you know, an arrogant way. It's sure, just sure. I put a lot of focus particularly into this hominin evolutionary story, whereas other people tend to be putting it into a different context, like looking at, you know, Gobekli Tepe or mm -hmm. the, the mounds. You know, they, they obviously have another focus, right? Um, mine is purely what the heck's going on with all these, these humans. Um, now, if you look back, essentially you have the emergence of a lineage that will lead to us, Neanderthals, Denisovans, and several others, which which occurs around about 800,000 years ago. And obviously, we covered this a bit in, in the other interview we did, so we rehashed too much. But essentially, we know there's a number of genetic changes that occur in the genome, which basically causes a splinter, you know, a lineage to diverge away from the last common ancestor. And then soon after that, Neanderthal, the lineage that leads to Neanderthals and Denisovans breaks away from ours, and then they have a split. Now, so this is all around between 500 to um, 780,000 years ago that this is happening, right? This, these particular splits. Now, I position all of these down in Southeast Asia and Oceania, not Africa. The, the, these, you have the Homo erectus, and you have at least one other population, possibly Hydab sorry, possibly Habilis or another early hominin, we're now suspecting that there's someone else already down in, in Southeast Asia who are the ancestors of, of Florensiensis. We, the, the, the feeling is that this is not Homo erectus giving rise to these hobbit people, but another group, possibly a kind of Australopithecus. There's somebody else already out there. In fact, this somebody else may be the ancestors of Homo erectus, right? Because we're not sure yet, but so one of these two, which whoever it is, maybe a mixture of the two, they give rise to these first not homosexual, but the lineage will lead to us, Neanderthals and Denisovans. So I'm positioning this event down mostly in northern Australia, the Indonesian islands, and Southeast Asia, or Sahul Sunda, right? And the interesting thing about that is my book was the first to predict this, that the Denisovans essentially had their homeland in Australia. Now, a couple of years back, people would have thought that's ludicrous, right? That's a ludicrous idea because the Denisovans were only found up in Siberia, right. the Denisovan cave. So it's like, well, how can you be putting them down in Australia? You know, now what they're finding is, of course, that the Papuans carry this signature of around 6% or so of their DNA is Denisovan DNA. And it's not just one Denisovan group, but, but potentially three different groups, right? The people in Siberia, they carry no Denisovan DNA today. So we know, we know that this is not really a heartland of Denisovans, okay? So they didn't even interbreed with the humans who moved into the area. So they, they couldn't have been many of them there, or they'd, you know, pretty much on the extinction by the time modern humans arrive, okay? Because there's, there's no signature for them. 
if you go to East Asia, you'll find a signature for Denisovans amongst East Asian people, but very low. It's usually around 0.1% to 1% of the DNA, well, the genome. Okay, it's only down in Island Southeast Asia and and basically what's called now obviously Oceania, Australasia, that we find this strong signature. The accepted model basically is moving towards is that, well, how can this be? It suggests that the Denisovans are already in Australasia when the encounter happens with modern humans, right? That they're living isolated down there. And then you get to another problem. You have that you find that in the latest studies, these other Denisovan branches, that some of them have split from each other around 400,000 years ago, right? So enormously deep, enormously deep diversion. Now, where else does that happen? We don't find evidence of this anywhere else. It's looking like there's multiple Denisovan populations down in Australia. So this is their homeland, right? That you've got multiple populations who themselves have deep, deep divergences, enough that we'd be talking about being on their way towards separate, you know, subspecies, right? So nobody, when I put my book out back in early 2017, nobody would have been else was really thinking down that route. But you know, I could see from the studies I was doing, it was clearly going that way. And, and there's other things that people haven't clocked onto yet. I mean, you may not know this, but uh, Papua New Guinea has the, the, the most intense clustering of distinct languages on the planet. You know, and it's one small, one relatively small island, okay? And you have um, something like, I think it's about 800 languages with different language groups, all that. This is not one language group that, you know, loads, dozens of separate language groups. I believe that we have in there Denisovan languages, right, as well, which have persisted and they have modified. Obviously, now they're modified. You wouldn't be the same as they were, sure. you know, when the Denisovans were a separate group. But the, when you see this wealth of languages, I think that we had a, um, a contraction of populations into northern Sahul and including several lineages of Denisovans and other groups. And that's why we have not only this fantastical mix of DNA, but a fantastical mix of languages. There's nowhere else like that. So there was a, num- there was a number of clues, you could say. Um, but even even at the Denisova, I'm not going to give you a chance to jump in. I was say, but even at the Denisova cave, there's clues there because when they were testing the DNA, what they found was that one of the um, the Denisovans there, she actually had DNA from modern humans of the Papuan population type, right? So it's like, hang on a minute. So it's looking more like this is someone who's come up, you know, or a population that's made their way up from northern Australia to Siberia. So again, I think that we have is the vestiges of a migration, an early migration out of Australia involving Denisovans who have encountered modern humans. And there's been a mix and they're, they're the people that, you know, are coming up into into Siberia. And that's why I say it's not the homeland. That's why we don't find this this their signature within Siberian people today. This is a an outlying cave on the edges, if you like, of the um of their world, right? It's not this is not their homeland. So Bruce, just because uh, you know we we don't always get the opportunity to speak with somebody with the depth of anthropological knowledge that you have, and more so just as a question, less so as any kind of challenge. Um, can you break down kind of your understanding of you know when we think about some of the traditional models that you have this uh, Homo Heidelberg genesis, the theory of of the kind of branching into the Neanderthal and or Neanderthal and uh, Denisovan. Mm-hmm. Um, so where, where does, do you see them as a separate genetic lineage or do you see them coming from that lineage? What is your research indicated to you? 
uh, in my view, and I accept, um, you know, there's a, a guy, Milton Wolpoff, who's really one of the fathers of multi-regionalism. Uh, you know, he says that in his view, you don't get true speciation in hominins until about a million years of isolation from each other right, in two groups. Now, there's not been a million years yeah. since the divergence of these large-brained hominins, right? So, yes, yeah, so if you think that the very early part of the split that leads to all these large-brained hominins, if that's occurring around 800,000 years ago, so even, even if they were just separate all that time, it's not quite enough. I mean, obviously, it's getting close. But the thing is, we know that they weren't. We know that there's been interbreeding multiple times, right? And that there doesn't seem to be at any point, you know, well, at least for that persisted, at any point where a population would not end up mixing with another population, right? We're starting to find that there was, you know, mixing going back 500,000 years ago, 300,000 years ago here, you know, 200,000 years And that whenever groups kind of bump up against each other again, they start interbreeding. You know, they don't think, oh, you know, what are these creatures? Yeah, are they recognize each other. Yeah, they recognize suspect. each other as humans. <laughs> you know, and it's funny, you'll see an attitude in some of the articles where they say, you know, how could they? How could, you know, how could modern humans sleep with these Denisovan creatures or so? But, you know, they saw each other and they saw human beings, right? They didn't know the DNA lineage or yeah. they didn't think that their forehead was a bit too big so they can't be humans. You know, these are modern ideas. Clearly, you know, they were, in many respects, no different than, say, let's say a pygmy person um, from Africa meeting maybe, um, you know, a South, a South American tribes person or, or the differences we'd see, you know, between different groups today. Well, obviously, we have a lot of differences within the human population. You can have two people that look very unlike each other, you know, a Sam Bushman at seven foot and a pygmy at like, you know, five foot, whatever, you know, sure. we have these differences. We still recognize each other as humans, right? right? And people intermarry across all these groups. So it's a sort of strange idea that they would have seen each other and say, ooh, you know, what are they? I mean, yeah, they yeah, obviously yeah. knew these were. Well, humans, I mean, if right? you look back at like my college career, I definitely made some <laughs> suspect uh, dating decisions. Yeah, like, like, yeah, 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 yeah. What's up? She's like, I'm seven feet tall. You're like, yeah, girl, that's, that's right. Here. That's right. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know. People do. I mean, if, if there's anything that humans will, will pretty much make any answer for, it's having sex with other humans. I mean, sure. you know, that. It's, we know that. I mean, we know that. Even language has been no barrier. You know, size has been no barrier. Class, all the rest. So, it's been happening the whole time. There's never been a point. So, to to my view, what we really have is what I what I tend to think of as a greater Homo sapiens family. And I said because when I say Homo sapiens, I'm thinking of the implication of being you know intelligent sapiens, intelligent, basically big brained, right? So. From around 800,000 years ago, we have the genetic changes that will inevitably take us to large brains, whether we're Neanderthals, Denisovans, modern humans, all of these groups end up with the large brain. To me, all of these are one species. I would accept that Neanderthals and us, etc., are different subspecies within that group, okay? But I don't think we are fully separate species. And I'm clearly, once upon a time, species inferred you couldn't interbreed for a start, right? Now, people are sort of modifying that that meaning. But we know there was extensive interbreeding. So from a conventional understanding of what species is, we were one species, you know, perfectly able to interbreed. I'm not saying there was never any problems that you might not lose some fetus here and there, you know, that sure. it might not have been always easy. But clearly it happened quite extensively because, you know, most of us in this conversation will have probably 3% Neanderthal and maybe traces of other, you know, other hominins in it. And so, so clearly it was extensive. So let's let's go even way further back here. Um, 
I know there's a recent discovery in Crete, of all places, um, of a humanoid footprint that potentially dates back to something like six million years ago. Uh, can you talk about this discovery and any implications this holds for the kind of chronology that we've been discussing? Sure. I mean, this is a, a controversial find. The authors of the study have, you know, they've they've had a lot of flack, but just simply because it's controversial, not because there was anything wrong with their study, you know, not because it was inaccurate or badly done, um, but people didn't want to accept it because what they found is that the the footprints on Crete, of, uh, yeah, around five six million years, um, around about as as modern in their in their structure as as the 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 African was it like his Laetitoli, where you've got these the earliest human like. Um, bridge to the foot and the displacement of toes in a footprint in Africa, but this and these ones down in Crete, you know, uh, looking almost perhaps a little bit more modern, right? Uh, and this is, you know, this has been a bit of a, a head scratcher for the conventional model because, so, well, you know, the, supposedly, you know, we couldn't, you know, have headed out of Africa that early. But when you when you really look back at that period, I mean, Southern Europe was at one point the major, you know, hothouse for the pre-hominid ancestors right that when they moved away from southeast asia and i said it was just climate shift they moved into sort of southern europe okay and then there's some later events around five million years ago so that that by that point they're supposed to have sort of faded out from that region and you've just got the african group but we don't really know that we don't know that there was none left there and we also don't know for sure that the evolution is happening you know that leads to hominins it's really just an african story and this and this find is kind of saying well hang on a minute you know we've got footprints here at five million years that look awfully like they're on their way to being you know human you know if you like they're hominins definitely look like hominin footprints and they're older than you know similar looking ones in africa so, so that's a problem there's also been a couple of fossil finds down in in greece i think it's in bulgaria that was some people spinning as being possibly again yeah, as evidence of early hominins at seven million years now there's a strange kind of contest you know that goes on that everything has to be in africa and if you if, if it's not there's kind of this strange idea that you know you're maybe a racist or you're just somehow just really controversial sure. but i don't i don't really know what this idea of adherence to out of africa comes from because if you really think about it it's like well at what point do we decide an ancestor is important because as, I, as i've already inferred there we've already been down in Southeast Asia, you know, early primates, right? They've moved, okay, they've moved to Southern Europe, right? Then they've technically moved to Africa, right? And then we have all these other groups that move out. But at what stage do we say, well, this is the ones that matter, you know, and it's out from wherever they're standing, you know? So it's a kind of a strange idea because, you know, it's, it comes down to really, I, my feeling about anthropology, if you go back, you know, particularly to the Victorian era when the first, you know, English anthropologists were going out and pretty much founding the field. They went out looking for Eden. Yeah, they went out yeah. looking for Eden and Adam and Eve. And what they decided upon in the end was, you know, that quest eventually led to East Africa and, you know, an ancestral Adam and Eve. And obviously, even sometimes we talk about, you know, genetic Eve and all this. And so that's always been kind of mixed, mixed in there. And that the idea of Exodus, you know, out of the garden, right? So that there's been these waves out of Africa, out of Eden, you know, <laughs> from ancestor. I mean, and a lot of that's just baloney. And when you think about it, you think, well, yeah, really, it's not, this isn't scientific. And the idea of waves from Africa, when you sort of think about that, you think, well, why can no one ever walk back into Africa? You know, why is it always waves out of Africa? So, you know, the gates open, run out, we're closing it behind you. You know, no one comes back into <laughs> Africa. 
you know, you've been banished from the garden, you know? <laughs> it's a funny idea, isn't it? Because yeah, yeah. Ne- when you look at it scientifically, there's absolutely no barriers to people coming into Africa. And so in, in reality, that's what's happening, okay? You have a chaotic movement of people. Once, once hominins exist, and once they're fairly widespread, no matter where you start them. So if we know that by 2 million years ago, or say 1.8 million years ago, we've got hominins widespread. So that's t- at that point, you know, it's chaos, yeah? It's, it's not waves coming out of anywhere. It's different groups following game or following plants or, or joining with another group, you know, interbreeding. If they don't like the climate in Asia, they can walk back to Africa, nothing's stopping them, you know, and vice versa. If Africa's not doing well, people will go out, okay? Now, for some reason, this model has always been um, ignored or rejected for some reason. It's always this waves from Africa. And you, you, notice, you may have noticed that they found... Um, a part of a skull in Greece recently, okay. right? And that came up as being about 300,000 years old or something, okay? Now, and they said it's a, a Homo sapiens skull. I think 200 and something to 300,000. Very old, right? I mean, you have to, I'm about to double check that. But um, basically, it's so old, yeah? The oldest evidence of Homo sapiens in, in the Mediterranean. Then straight away, they turned and said, well, this is evidence of another migration from Africa. It's like, if, yeah, people will stray with or swallow that because we're so used to being told that line that every time you find one that's older, it's another migration out of Eden. You know, it's like the default setting, it's, basically. It's like, yeah, it's like, wait a minute. Couldn't that just be evidence that we have a widespread, long-standing population outside of the continent, right? And that this is just one skull from that lineage that could have been there from you know five hundred thousand years ago, and that this is just from that lineage. Why does it always infer another migration, right? There's nothing scientific at all about that idea. There's there's no basis. He didn't come with a sticker saying made in Africa on him, right? Sure. And you don't know what. Do you know which direction he was walking when he died? I don't think he left any notes. So so this is a, <laughs> it's a really it's a strange idea that we don't question because we're used to just getting told these things and swallowing it without then critically thinking and thinking how on earth would they know that this is the result of another migration, right? So this is. A fundamental rewriting, what I would want people to really imagine is that from the moment Homo sapiens exist, you know, even before that, the moment Homo erectus is widespread, from then on, right, Africa, Eurasia, right, and probably America, because there's some evidence to suggest very early habitation there, and Australia, right, all have hominins living fairly continuously moving around, mixing, right, fairly continuously from then on, except for when there are climatic problems or other cataclysms which remove humans from one area or displace them, you know, or there's a virus or something. Those are the only reasons why we get, you know, abandoned land masses or migration stuff after that. Really, you've got to start thinking of the world as being continuously populated from the time Homo erectus reaches Southeast Asia 1.8 million years ago, at least, if not before, That's right? Crazy. And when you And when you think of that, it, it makes sense, yeah? Because instead of these waves and these, oh, where do they all go? Why is there only another wave? Where are they going? You know, this strange idea that they're walking out into the nothing. It's like, well, no, no, there's people there. There's always people there. You know, there's all kinds, and then mostly similar kinds of people. Homo erectus times, there wasn't a lot of other hominins, right, that we know of. Homo erectus seems to be the master of his domain, but... Once we have these splits, you know, there's all sorts of people everywhere. But the bottom line is, they are everywhere. And that's when I say, you look at these Chinese finds and stuff, that they make sense in the context of what 
you'd kind of expect, if you're looking at this objectively, that there would be people from then on everywhere. Yeah. And so what really happens, and this is where you start rewriting it, and they say, well, okay, when we look at the genetic evidence, you know, they say, we, we think that, you know, all modern humans, at least, you know, that they came from Africa and that we can look at the genetics. Of course, when you look at going further back, there's a problem because we don't have exceptionally old genetic information from Homo sapiens, right? right, right. So the oldest DNA that we have today comes from the Cima de los Huestos site in Spain. Now, those were essentially Homo heidelbergensis, which are ancestral Neanderthals. And I know that we touched on that earlier, that once upon a time, Homo heidelbergensis was considered to be the ancestor of Neanderthals and modern humans. But what they found with the DNA at Cima de los Huestos, and due to the age of the site, which is about 500,000 years old, they found that these were too early on, and they were too Neanderthal-like to make sense of them being, you know, Homo heidelbergensis, Hydrogenesis being ancestral to both. So we now know that hydrogenesis is basically a Neanderthal, Neanderthal, right? That's the oldest DNA we have. So that's not an ancestor of ours. The The oldest Homo sapiens DNA, I think, at the moment is, um, I think, like 50,000 years old or something. We don't have, we don't have really truly, truly ancient, ancient DNA, right, for our lineage due to where they've extracted it. You know, we, find, we have to find someone who's in particular world preserved condition, you know, say in a, an ice cave, obviously it'd be ideal, sure, think, sure. but, or just in a climate where the DNA is not completely gone. Um, potentially, you can recover DNA up to a million years old. That's that's what they think the technical limits, maybe one to 1.5 million years. So, you know, we can go quite far back. They've done a horse DNA that's 700,000 years old. So we know it technically can happen, right? But yeah, so that's where we're at. We, we have this, this argument that, okay, what actually what's happened to populate the world you know who are we kind of if we, we move to the homo sapiens story and again i'm for, for several reasons i'm going to go into you know, why i position in australia or it's up to you but i'm obviously i position in australia sure you yeah. mentioned fundamental rewrites there bruce and i think that that's a great yeah. jumping off point to talk about another discovery mm -hmm. uh, that warrants poking that bear right so that discovery is essentially unearthing uh, of some stone tools that I believe dated back to like 2.5 million years ago in Algeria, right? And then there's also a discovery in China dating back to, to what, like 2.1 million years ago, again, stone tools. And so we're, there, there's several articles floating around out there that, that talk about how this potentially warrants a rewriting uh, of the out-of-Africa theory. And so like, just break us off on, on what we're looking at here. Explain these discoveries, walk us through through, sure. through those events, and then explain to us why they warrant the, the re-examination of the timeline, essentially. Sure. Yeah. So this, yeah, this free sets. I think it's also Lebanon, and the, yeah, these these tools really they infer that there is a hominin population widespread before Homo erectus, and so rather than an, an exodus from Africa around two million years ago, it looks more like there's already an extensive, you know, widespread population of an unknown hominin, probably ancestral to Homo erectus, who is already as far, you know, far widespread as you say, you know, all the way from Africa to China. Right, so that this then allows for evolution in situ uh, down in Asia and elsewhere to Homo erectus. Right, so then you start to well, then you got say the Georgian Homo erectus, which was a which was a surprise find a few years back, 1.8 million year old, uh, roughly 1.8 million year old Homo erectus finds up in Georgia in the mountains, and then you put that into that context, you start thinking, well, did they 
migrate out of Africa, or these and in situ evolution. And the interesting thing is, some of these skulls from the site, there's five skulls, they actually looked awfully a lot like earlier habilis or another group. That So even in that small group of five skulls, they said there was enough variation to infer that groups that we had once thought were separate species may all be part of the greater variety within the Homo erectus population. So what, what we may really have is a transition going on fairly globally from an earlier hominin towards Homo erectus. And we're seeing the diversity across the, of, of these changes because we're seeing some that still look more more um, you know, ancestral to the others, but they're living at this contem contemporary time. You know, to, to see that kind of level of, of diversity within five skulls in one burial site, you know, this is astonishing that it can literally rewrite our understanding of different species. So this other find plays into that. It suggests that you know, we need to think maybe that that hominins are widespread, two point, perhaps 2.5 million years ago, before Erectus has even emerged. And again, this fits with the new understanding of the Homo floresiensis hobbit people, because when you when they study the morphology and they try and take them back to who their unlikely ancestor was, although they've speculated it would be Homo erectus because they knew these, these ones were down in the region, right? But they, so it didn't seem to stack up, and it was suggestive that there was an earlier hominin in the region who made its way to Flores. And now this meshes with these stone tools very well, because it's pointing to an even earlier, you know, um, global population who has then given rise to all of these, you know, later forms. And, and there's no need, for, after that really, there's no need for this Africa as the cradle of civilization. What you instead have is you need to think globally. You think basically evolution in hominins is happening across regions, interbreeding between groups, that there's a flow of genes from Africa all the way down to Southeast Asia, that groups mix, you know, on the edges of their territory. And so there's a progression, you know, for gene sharing, moving around and, and other evolutionary pressures where everyone is kind of changing together, right? That there's not, it's not waves coming out and new replacements. You know, there's... That idea, I think, is really going to go down the toilet. I, th I think it's becoming more and more obvious. It really is. I mean, I think it is clear now that probably 2.5 million years won't won't stay. You know, it'll probably go back earlier. But, you know, it keeps going back. You know, that really it's a, a multi-regional story that, that we are out there. You know, hominins are out there. You know, and even in, in the Americas, there's been a few skulls which – seems to be Homo erectus skulls, but they haven't been well studied. It's a small number, but there there have been finds of what seems to be Homo erectus skulls. Obviously, there's been this thing about the man, the um, the the bones that were that were seen to have been crushed you know, by humans for food. 120,000, 130,000 years ago, the mastodon bones. Sorry, study. There's also the famous Huatlajo uh, site where there was evidence of perhaps humans there 200, 300, even 500,000 years ago. Ruined a lot of careers. I mean, you probably know that one because it was yeah. a controversial, very controversial find. Uh, it destroyed everyone's careers. De I think McIntyre is the only one now alive still from the geological team, but she, you know, she had her career ruined. Most of these people had their careers kind of ruined because they were saying, well, look, the geological data is saying there was humans here, you know, like at least 200,000 years ago. And the anthropological community said, no, 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 it can't be, you know, you're all wrong. <laughs> That's it. You know, and it was it was not about science. It was about that the official story is thirteen thousand years ago Clovis arrived in America, and if you are going to go against that, your careers are over, right? And that that was the position they were put in. So you know, in reality, we have had evidence that Homo erectus or another hominin was in the Americas extraordinarily early, but 
people don't like to remember what happened at Watalak. Sure, so they, they sure. I mean, they just erase that from their perspective. Right. Um, so yeah. one, one of the other things that I think, um, you know, is pretty fascinating just from a perspective of, yes, Homo sapiens as a uh, group of, of humanoids in, have certain behavior patterns and do certain things, use tools. We have these big brains. And I know recently there have been a number of studies about, you know, prefrontal cortex development and things about, you know, essentially how do, how do we get from this tool using uh, super smart uh, ape to this, uh, you know, entity that's making, um, you know, cars float in space. Um, and so mm -hmm. one of the things that I uh, read recently and Andrew and I were digesting over the course of this last week is that um, there's this potential new theory about uh, potentially 60, 70,000 years ago, there was this genetic variation in the way that prefrontal cortex um, neurochemistry mm -hmm. is happening in some generation. Um, and I just kind of wanted to yep. get your take since, uh, again, just speaking to the, the expert, you know, when do you think mm -hmm. that humans developed imagination, you know, developed abstract mm -hmm. language? Uh, is that something that's come up in your research? Um, actually, I read the paper, so I know I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the, nice. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the beginnings of yeah of a reticular language, and that yeah. the, the the way that we structure our thinking so that we can use temporal and uh, spatial you know linking between things. That so for people aren't sort of familiar with that, that you know we take it for granted that we can say you know I will. I will go and get the fish from the river at five o'clock, you know, and then we'll have dinner on the rock here. But th there are people who wouldn't be able to conceptualize of what on the rock is or what later really means because mm -hmm. there's only the thought of a stone, for example. But when you stop putting the stone with the fish on the rock at five o'clock, you start linking things in time and space, which as far as we know, most animals can't do mm -hmm. we don't, obviously we're not too up to speed with that but we think that early hominins also couldn't do that there was just the rock you know they would have heard the rock the fish you know and that's about it. they wouldn't get the bit you're saying on the rock and at five o'clock and say no it's just the rock on the fish or you know the rock of fish you know that <laughs> we didn't have the kind of thing and they think that the idea of me meshing two concepts together you know came about perhaps as recently as 60, 60 to 70,000 years ago, perhaps earlier. But I mean, the moment is looking strongly like that because of the fact that we have the cultural kind of revolution, a behavioral cultural revolution around that time. And also the argument was that if you look at, um, say, the Lion Man sculpture in yeah. Germany, which yeah. they said that you had to, of course, you had to mesh two, two things together. You had to take the concept of the man, the lion, and mesh them together this idea of, of bringing different spatial objects together in some way again point to this new development in the frontal cortex um but there's a huge huge anomaly in there because of course like even if we say that okay let's accept the argument that seventy thousand years ago this happened and, and seventy thousand years ago is an important time I and mean, I'll, I'll tackle that separately but if if we accept the idea that this comes about seventy thousand years ago we still have a problem because particular language it it necessitates right that a child is exposed to this kind of thing in this language structure yeah. in their formative years right and that it has to be persistent so for several years during your very early years you know your toddler period you need to be with people that are using this language system for the brain change to occur so you they also need an existing slight brain change 
that allows this to happen. Something's already happened, but you then also need to be exposed to reticular language for the brain, the further changes to occur in the frontal lobe so that you can use particular language, right? Now, this is a, you just consider sort of a hard barrier yeah. in evolution because obviously, if you have nobody, it's a chicken egg, you know, that yeah, right. people aren't talking this somebody, way around you. Yeah, yeah, if you have nobody to sit and expose you to it by talking to you in that language, no matter what brain change is possible for you, there's no way for you to develop that, right? And so it's recognized even in the paper, this is a really an anomaly, this is a real problem. And the guy tries to speculate that, well, maybe two kids came up with this. At this you, see, you need at least two people. <laughs> maybe two kids came up with this together and they started somehow cobbling it together and speaking to each other in this way and that then between them it occurred now and these have to be kids that are to, yes. to the point you're making earlier these have to be kids that are you know between or at the time they're positing between one and two and a half years old versus you know kids now even if they don't have uh, that sort of recursive language right. spoken to them before the age of five they don't develop that sort of uh, no, yeah, it's a two two year old out on the rock with the fish at five o'clock <laughs> yeah. I feel like I should just cue up the X-Files theme song right now <laughs> yeah, right? Right. <laughs> exactly it gets to that because you think well so you've got to have these two kids being in the same place at the same time and being able to spend a lot of time together. So it's almost like they have to be, you know, brother and sister or in two families that happen to live next to each other and right. both come up with this idea together. So straight away you're putting in odds here that are lottery winning odds yeah. of just having these two kids together yeah. and that them spending a lot of time together and then both coming up with reticular language with, with no nothing to precede it to make them do that and persisting at it long enough for them to develop these changes. But not only that, right? In that harsh world of the time, we have to allow for them both surviving to adulthood. Yeah. And I would imagine probably having to mate with each other yeah. to pass mm -hmm. on these genetic changes. Right? Also to be there, two of them, to speak to the kids. And if, and if anyone starts dying in this scenario, it's very quickly going to disappear, this, right? Because then you need their children to be exposed to it. So there's only two people on earth at that point who, who have it. So they now have to nurture that language in a coming generation. So they have to have had children, those children had to survive, they had to have spent time talking to them in particular language. You know, you, you start going into this, what is absurd, like jumps, where yeah. to get this to work, it, it quickly looks very absurd that they, you know, that they then basically have to be teaching the kids this language. And, and this is all having gone past what is obviously a jump at the point of them being able to invent a language that their brain couldn't conceive. Right, because they don't have the structure in the brain that allows you to use particular language. So how are they coming up with it and talking to each to each other, which then causes it to develop? It doesn't make sense. It is like a chicken and egg. You can't you can't really have the language without the brain structure, and you can't have the brain structure without the language. Pretty right? fascinating and paradox. So yeah, it is a fascinating paradox. So straight away, what you really then infer is somebody else is teaching the people how to speak, <laughs> right? Yep. So. No one's going to, like, no academics going to go there. So they'll give right. you this, you know, long, kind of winded, you know, maybe it's this. But you're inferring somebody else can use reticular language because we've already been told there's no other way to develop it except being exposed to it from somebody who's already using it, right? So it's a huge hurdle. And, you know, I don't think they can. I looked at the paper. I don't think he covered it. It was his best shot, but it doesn't, I don't buy it. It, it really is a hard barrier. Um, the only way would be is if there's already an existing human group, so say some, I don't know, I don't want to say lost, but a culture or a group we don't know about that had a particular language and somebody from it teaches these children or otherwise you have to infer alien visitors 
you know, teaching the people, modifying right. them, giving them this this genetic change that causes the brain structure change, and then teaches them language, which is the kind of thing you get in legends, isn't it? Is that right. bringers or of somebody, language? You know? Somebody, uh, uh, some shaman was, you know, out uh, not thinking too abstractly and ate certain fungus, and then right. brought this fungus back to his tribe, and then check everybody check starts eating out. the fungus, right. and they're like, dudes, now the I can see the future. That. You know, yeah. I talked to a friend about this. He said, yeah, could it have been, you know, psychedelics? But the thing is, he's like, well. As a child, would you be eating huge quantities of psychedelic enough to be continually exposed to this spirit that's talking to you? Right? I mean, how, many, how many times would you give your baby magic mushrooms? I mean, like, right. Parenting was weird back then. I mean, that's, you know, so I did, we did wonder that. We thought, yeah, it just seemed like so unlike you'd keep giving psychedelics to your baby and right. to, you know, without thinking right. maybe this isn't. Maybe this isn't a good idea. It doesn't, doesn't make um, a lot so, of sense. It's crazy too. Yeah, you I talk about like a previous culture that had this, this already developed that, that they're the ones passing it on. All we're doing in that scenario is punting it further back in time. Like, <laughs> That's right. If you guys we're just want, pushing it back. I'll cue the, the, the X-Files yeah. theme music again. I can do it. I have the power. <laughs> 70,000 years ago, it's, you know, there's, it's an interesting time. And I don't know if you want to, we can sort of expand on that. Because of course, that is the time of the recent out of Africa migration allegedly okay. okay so so of course we have a lot of interesting things happening at that point now the argument is that by around that period you know there's although there's some neanderthals and probably some others out in eurasia you know modern humans you know are not are not out yet they're in africa right and that there is a, a migration there's two two crucial migrations if you like in the the out of Africa or recent out of Africa model went around 120,000 years ago, supposedly, right? Which which failed, and it got to as far as the Near East, and they died out, right? And then there's inferred that there's a second migration around about 70,000 years ago, and that this migration goes on to populate Eurasia, and then Australia, and then finally America. This is the conventional view. Now, obviously, I'm just going to tear that apart very quickly for people because it's important because every article you've ever seen in your life talking about recent out of Africa will start with uh, the one thing we know for certain is you know no matter what else we don't know we know for certain is that modern humans came out of Africa around about 70,000 sometimes 60,000 which is a, a key point years ago uh, and populated Eurasia blah 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 and then the rest you know who knows right but, but that is not at all solid what you actually find is there's, there's a, a key split here because if you see an article which is informed by geneticists, right? They will say, heard 60,000 years ago, and we know because, you know, when we look at the genetic data, we can see that the divergence event occurs around 60,000 years ago, maybe 55, but, you know, they'll give it to 60,000 years ago, okay? Now, if you go, you look at an article that's been informed more by anthropologists, usually it'll say around 70,000 to 80,000 years ago, we've come out, and that's because they look at two different sets of things, physical evidence, genetic data, Right. So how can those not mesh? Yeah. If we're talking about one migration event, it can't be 60,000 years ago and 70,000. Right. Unless it's just a long ass migration event. Well, it doesn't it doesn't stack up, you know, sure. it doesn't stack up. And, and the reason why is you've got two different events. This is something that people have not in the sciences have not yet got their heads around, which I've, I've struggled to get them to understand. It's actually mind bogglingly simple. Um, 73,000 years ago, you have a really major event. You have a cataclysm, okay? You have you have a sudden cooling of the, the, the climate, but it's worsened by the explosion of the Lake Toba supervolcano, biggest eruption of a volcano in two million years, massive mega die-off event, right? This thing throws up enormous quantities of dust and gas into the atmosphere, 
due to the prevailing currents, this material loops around the northern hemisphere, basically circling the northern hemisphere of our planet in almost like a nuclear winter type setting. Sure. You've also got a factory and you've got sulfuric acid rains, you know, the, the water has been poisoned, plants are dying off, sun is being blocked. You've got all those things that come with an event like that. Now, anyone living in the northern hemisphere is having a very, very bad time. Yeah. So on top of existing cooling, they've now got accelerated cooling plus all these other horrible things happening to them. You know, so, what do they do? Apart from dying, you know, obviously they retreat into areas where there are survival niches for them. You know, we know Neanderthals some better this, but it's a mistake to think that they, that they were okay. There's evidence to suggest Neanderthals were once numbering hundreds of thousands, right? But not long after this, Neanderthals are near extinction, right? So I would suggest Neanderthals have lost an enormous population across Eurasia. Other hominins have probably gone extinct entirely. We have basically the disappearance pretty much of Homo sapiens in Eurasia, which is what's happened to these earlier waves, if you like. They're not waves, really. The persistent population that were there already. They've been wiped out, almost all of them, not all. And then you have a few people who are off in Western Asia who move west. Because, you know, if you imagine, right, the smoke is coming up from, from Indonesia, right? So this effect is, is heading westward to you as it encircles the globe. So you are being pushed, right, away from east right so as it worsens so you're going to have groups coming into you, you imagine you're in western asia you're going to have groups coming into your land and you're going to be starting if you can speak you're going to be hearing horror stories right or they're going to infer to you you know don't go that way you know right. bad news you know and you and the animals can start dying the weather's going to start changing you're going to be pushed right westward and if if you're down say, in the middle east you're in western asia there's a point where if you are pushed to the babel mandad straits right which is a it's short crossing right across to um to east africa Right, that is a perfect entry. We know that that's an entry and exit point into in and out of Africa. What you see there is a climate migration. Seventy-three thousand years ago, a group of refugees makes their way across the Babel Mandab into East Africa. They carry with them new new haplogroups. We know how basically you have mtDNA haplogroups. Um, what's this? Sorry, we've got L3, which is usually considered in conventional models to be foundational to all modern Eurasians, but okay. it's not. Um, and we also see a, a, um, patri- a, pa- sorry, a paternal haplogroup, CT, that appears in East Africa. Now, when you track which way these haplogroups expand, they expand west and south, right, in Africa. So hang on a minute. If these groups are going out, if these are the foundational group that go out and colonize Eurasia, why are they expanding westward into Africa? Right, mm. that's, that's another little. Hmm, hang on a minute, that's a head scratcher. And then you have another problem because, say that these are new mutations that are, are, arose in Africa just before the migration out. That's the conventional argument. But maternal and paternal haplogroups differentiate in their mutation rates by a factor of ten. Right, so the chances of you getting new mutations on both the maternal and paternal lines at the same moment in the same small group in East Africa is mind-bogglingly unlikely. What you instead have is obvious evidence of an incursion by a new population. Now, this is further confirmed when you look at the change in technology, the first signs of arrowheads. Right, you also you get the earliest um, conceptual art. You get the you know down in um, the Blombos caves in that area. You get these zigzag patterns and stuff. The use of oak of drawing artwork. So you've got cultural shift along with new genetic lines. Now, it's 
this is sort of mind-boggling. You'd think, surely any academic, you know, in these fields could see this. This is a glaring red flag for a for an incursion and for cultural diffusion, right? But no, they, they seem to somehow miss it. Even with all the evidence, even if it's spreading to the south and to the west, it's, it's quite bizarre. So this is what's going on at 73,000 years ago. And, and now we have the climate data, right, which has come up saying that, that there was the worst droughts and aridity of the region in Levant, the Middle East, and North Africa, right, of, of known history pretty much, around that time, 73,000 years ago. And as one leading, you know, scholar in that field said, it'd been a very terrible idea to sort of walk out of Africa at that point. Because mm-hmm. you're like walking from sub-Equatorial Africa, which is perfectly safe. Right? We know that. A lot of studies have come out recently saying that Toba didn't have a huge impact below the equator, okay? So you're going to leave your nice little warm area and walk into the worst conditions, you know, walk out into this 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 bleak wasteland of death, right? That's not the time you start a migration out of, the, out of Africa. It doesn't make any sense. And in fact, we don't even know if it would have been survivable. I would suggest it wouldn't have been. That's why people are coming across the Babo Mandab. These, and these people are coming in with bows and arrows, right? And, and they would not be stoppable. Because you think about it, you know, you, they have a technological advantage. They, they are using ranged weapons, right? So if there wasn't some kind of truce made, which they may have been, maybe they got welcomed in, but they would not have been able to stop them. Because if you imagine, you know, you've got hell at your back and you're, you've got bows and arrows and the people in front of you have got spears, you're the winners, right okay. so there is there is a we can see this but the fact that they move into the west nobody stops them either they're being welcomed in or they're fighting their way through but nobody stops these people and then they know they can't go back right so these are real real you know real signs of a real event we know the event we understand the tober event so what what do we have next so if we're disconnecting this story say 73,000 years ago is not the reason out of africa migration it's not the founding of, of eurasia and the eurasian people so what happens next? And bear in mind, this is the same period that we've already touched on. Is that this particular language appears? There's, you know, there's a lot of other stuff happening. The behavioural uh, revolution starts underway around this time. So, we've got a movement of people due to this cataclysm down in Southeast Asia. People also, you know, if you can, you're crossing the equator, right? You need to get into the southern equator, right? So, if you can get down into Australia and some of the eastern islands of Indonesia, they seem to be okay. But then again, you've got another safe zone. So you end up with two refugia, right, for modern humans and Denisovans, we now know, and probably some others, right? So again, this is why you have that condensation of languages I touched on earlier. You've got refugees, right? So you've got a lot of different groups that are trying to make their way to safety. So you, you end up with clustering of all sorts of groups that didn't used to live with each other because they're all being forced by this climate event, you know, into a tighter contracted space. These two survival groups are now locked in for a while, while the northern hemisphere recovers. I mean, we know there are some Neanderthals, there's a few hominins that are surviving in certain areas, you know, in the Neanderthals in some bleak areas in Europe, in the ice, they become, you know, ice specialists. But there's there's then, you know, climate improves, and then around 60,000 years ago, a group moves north from Australia, and then they move across into Southeast Asia, across through the islands, and begin to spread again, right? And this is the recolonizing of Eurasia, mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with the group coming out of Africa. What's the Africans? Maybe some of them came out a little later, but we know the the genetics points to an expansion from the east. Again, this is very clear. I'm not just putting this out. If you look at a map of the the basically the early groups in Asia, what you find is the earliest groups are right in the east, 
And then we know that then there's, there's an event where there's a migration as people start to move westward. And in fact, Europeans, you know, the European splinter group, don't arise till about 35,000 years ago. Right? Europe's not reached till then. Now, look on a map. Think to yourself, if people have walked out of Africa 70,000 years ago, how does it take 35,000 years to reach Europe? Right. Yeah. Fly next to Africa, North Africa. Doesn't make any sense. But these, and then if you look again, you look at um, the earliest splinter groups, they're in East Asia. Right? We know this. This is factual. Nobody disputes this. And when they tested Aboriginal DNA, they found that the Aboriginal DNA suggests that they, these people had split away from equatorial, sorry, sub-equatorial Africans around 70 to 73,000 years ago, funnily enough, uh, making them the oldest distinct population outside of Africa, you know, that's foundational really, and that then you have the East Asians and then actually you have the Europeans as these groups diverge off. Now, how does that fit with people moving across from Africa, right? right. And that Australia is the last place, yeah? It, and then it's, they also found that the closest relationships of genetics are Aboriginals, Asians and Europeans cluster, right, away from Africans. There's a tight cluster between them. They're clearly part of the same group, the same migration. That's fully accepted. For a while, people tried to argue that there was perhaps two or three different migration events. Now we know that this, that's impossible, that the clustering of these figures show that they are they are from one population, right? There wasn't a second wave or something. That was right. used to try and explain this. That's collapsed. The fast migration around the coast has collapsed this idea that people raced around to Australia, that's collapsed. There's been a few attempts to try and, you know, um, prop up the old models. They've all gone to the dustbin now, all these, these attempts. And in fact, as we look at, as I say, as we look at Aboriginals, we're finding they have astonishing genetic diversity. And not only that, they have the oldest variants of the haplogroups M and N, which are genuinely the foundational basal haplogroups of all living Eurasians. You know, and this is a study about two years ago. I'm like you jumping in a second. I just want to really get off. But um, about a year or so ago, there was a study done and they actually were expecting to find that the oldest variants of haplogroups M and N would be in Western Asia, basically in the Middle East logically because supposedly that's where you know this group has come out of africa that the haplogroup l3 was thought to be the mother of m and n mm -hmm. and that these east africans had given rise to m and n as they left there'd be basically two more mutations in quick succession which again is super unlikely right. because if you've, got, you've just had a, a mutation right this led to l3 and then they're saying the minute they leave africa there's two more and there's m and n appear right this is super unlikely but that, that was the model so and then they thought, well, obviously they're going to be the oldest variants will be in the Middle East because that's where they started from. And this study said uh, the weird thing was it turned out that the oldest variants were in Aboriginal Australians, Boom. and then we couldn't see works in the model at all. Boom! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, can't see how it works because you have a paradigm that you can't see beyond, mm -hmm. right? So willing to see what all the evidence keeps pointing to, which your models have collapsed, and that you know you're, it's a walking as a zombie. Like right? the, the reason that Africa is a zombie. It's walking along. It's two different events merged together. It's, it's the into Africa escaping from Lake Toba's effects and the out of Australia repopulating after these effects. Yeah. They've been merged together into this fear. And that's why they always say we can't understand this and we can't understand it. And there's so many anomalies in it because it's wrong and it's meshing two different things together that cannot go together. And that's why they keep giving the different dates. 80, it was 80,000. No, it was 50. No, 55. Oh, 60. Because if you look at different bits of evidence, they won't mesh with the date. Sure. And you'll have to change the date.
just got the wires crossed through and through. And I think of, you know, we've had had so many gnarly conversations on the show and I feel like, you know, a lot of them end with some solid homework for our audience, but I feel like you just dropped like, Hey, your finals due next week, hop online (laughs) and you're going to have to dig through all the things because that's one hell of a rabbit hole. So many things there, Bruce. I appreciate uh, you spending so much time being super detailed here. I know this is something I say on the show often, but uh, it is not every episode that I get this kind of uh, brain numbness. Yeah. That was really uh, exceptional. It was intense as hell. And I know that we've we've already like taken it. We, <laughs> <laughs> no, I know that we've already like exceeded our time that we had scheduled with you today, and we appreciate the hell out of you for for doing the deep dive with us. Before we uh, cut you loose for for the afternoon, just uh, hit us with the URL, the website address. That way, people can continue to jump down the rabbit hole with you. Follow your work online. Uh, walk us through that real quick. Sure. Yep. If people would like to, they can follow me on, well, I have a website, ancientnews.net, um, brucefenton.info, and um, also, well, for the other book, hybridhumans.net. And I'm, I'm on Twitter. That's where a lot of people find me. I'm also in a few episodes of Ancient Aliens Season 14 at the moment. Um, so people may see me in there. And, um yeah, so I mean, by all means, they can follow me on Twitter or contact me via the websites and stuff if they want to. Hell yeah. Well, Bruce, listen, it's always a pleasure picking your brain, having a conversation with you. We really appreciate you carving time for us today. Thank you so much for, for joining us, man. Huge. Great. Thank you very much. And hopefully people will go out and get a copy of The Forgotten Exodus as well. I hope. Oh, <laughs> we'll, thanks, we'll link the hell out of that much. thing. Don't worry. Don't worry. Absolutely awesome. Well. Yep. Be well. Thanks, Bruce. No worries. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. Bye now. Whoa. Bruce Fenton. Always, always got some knowledge to drop, man. I thought, you know, after our last conversation with him that we had gone down a lot of different pathways together. But, you know, this stuff, I know Australia has really been in the news quite a bit uh, recently. You know, mm. all of our hearts go out to you know, different Aboriginal populations and some of the indigenous groups of people who have been dealing with these fires, you know, in a particularly gnarly way. Animal populations, yeah. you know, lost in the, in the like, billion or billion plus animals potentially lost. Um, but something that I personally was unaware of is just the possibilities of the indigenous populations being some origin point for uh, Denisovan or Denisovan uh, genetics. Yeah. The genetic right. lineage. I think a lot of people talk about the Denisovan cave and, you, you know, Denisov, the Denisova cave and like how, you know, people have the kind of reverse understanding of the migration pattern either from or out of Africa. And it's really interesting to think about the potential here that there is equal opportunity equal possibility of genetic lineage coming from aboriginal populations in africa and moving across you know the southeast asia in that way it's really fascinating it really is right and again it just always brings me back to like we don't really know shit (laughs) you know like we 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 do have a pretty good sense of what we think happened and and we've done some amazing work as a species and as a collective to like try to crack the nut but hot damn, there's just so much out there that still needs to be explored and, and seeing, shoot on. And, you know, and seeing stuff where I think we throw around a lot of numbers, too, when people are thinking about, you know, Homo sapiens, um, you know, 100 plus thousand year potential genetic lineage. You see the Neanderthal, you yeah. know, sort of combinatory uh, genetic, uh, you know, intersection with Homo sapiens. You, yeah. see, you see these kind of like other little handholds. But generally, we're talking about you know, between 50,000 years, 100 something thousand years. But to see that, you know, we're talking about 
two and a half million years right. and we're still finding skeletal remains in China. Right. Right. That we're, we're still finding other skeletal remains that kind of continue to redefine our sense of how actually old some of this genetic lineage may actually be. Right. The, you know, the footsteps in, uh, was it Crete? Crete, specifically? yeah. Like things like that where we're seeing, you know, upright hominids walking around in areas that we previously thought there's no way, you know, N million of years prior to that, that there was an, an upright walking erect hominid. Right. And so I think it's just really just constantly reminds us of the, you know, main thematic that, uh, you know, the show has always been about. I mean, this is from episode one, you've been stressing this. And we literally say it at the end of every episode, but things like this, I think, really remind us that only in questioning mm -hmm. all of these things are we going to continue to ask better questions. Yeah, for sure. Um, and Bruce is just such a thoughtful person, both yeah. in this space and others. Yeah, he's a hitter for sure. And speaking of hitters, next week's episode is going to be interesting as hell because we have a hitter coming on the show straight up. We have Dr. David Miano, but if you're not familiar with that name, Check this out. So, you know, in the whole, the history of, of Lost Origins, we've had a lot of intense conversations with researchers, experts, PhDs, and everything in between, individuals who are just tirelessly working to try to answer questions as it relates to who we are, where do we come from, um, and just solve the mysteries of our chronology. Dr. David Miano, amazing dude, brilliant guy, right? Like this guy is, he's an ancient historian specializing in the histories of, of the Near East, Egypt, Greece, Rome, India, China, all the things. Uh, he earned his PhD at the University of California in San Diego in like 2006, I believe. But he's the author of How to Know Stuff uh, and like several anthologies of ancient works uh, designed for classroom use. Uh, and he is currently teaching at, I believe, the State College of Florida, and he runs a YouTube channel. And on this channel, I've watched a lot of these videos. He World, takes, World of Antiquity. Yeah, right? yeah. And he takes a very thoughtful approach to, I don't want to say debunking because that's, I, I feel like, a little aggressive, but we're going to use it. He's looking at a lot of these ancient mysteries and these theories that have been put forth, and he's showing us why we need to look at the evidence that is being presented by um, you know, mainstream academia as the North Star, but he's very thoughtful in the way that he does it. And I think it's going to be really, really neat to get his perspective on a lot of the stuff that we've talked about throughout the last couple of seasons on this show and just pick his brain and get you his know, take. I think this is something you talked about a lot. You know, you use the uh, word uniformitarian like a lot in first season, yeah, for yeah. instance. Um, and I think like part of what is really fun about what we do here is, you know, we're not we are not and hopefully nobody ever feels this way that we're telling you you should think about this thing that way right it, i think more so than anything it's always been a sense of hey let's hear what this person has to say uh, i don't know if we agree with it but really interesting perspective let's hear right. what this other person has to say and i think it's really nice to be able to say no let's bring somebody who's skeptical of the skepticism yeah uh, in the mix, somebody who has, you know, heavy academic articulation or a heavy academic ability to articulate some of these things. And I, I think that just, it's such a cool opportunity for our audience to be able to say, all right, let's question our questioning. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. A little bit of fact checks going on there. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be amazing. I, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, if you have not subscribed to the show, help us out. 
you know, do the thing for your homies, smash the subscribe button, do the five-star written review, hit us up on social media, let us know who you would like for us to bring on the show. We're gearing up for season four. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of work to coordinate these interviews. And so if there's season somebody, four. Oh my that's, God, that's crazy. Old. We are, we are indeed old. Um, but if there's somebody, a researcher, uh, an author, um, you know, somebody that's put forth a theory that you really, really want us to bring on the show and do the deep dive with, just hit us up, let us know, and we'll do everything we can to make it happen. So tune in next week for our conversation with Dr. David Miano. And until then, I'm Andrew. CK. We challenge you to question everything.